HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I will be speaking with Bruce Friedrich, Executive Director of the Good Food Institute, an association that works with scientists and innovators and entrepreneurs to support companies working to bring clean meat and plant-based alternatives to animal products um, to market. We will discuss the growth of this industry, the goals of this organization, and what policy solutions will continue to push the issue. Bruce, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jenna. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, okay, so just to kind of uh, be super clear, when you say, when we talk about an association, are you a trade association or something different? Uh, no, we are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so just a straight charity, uh, like any, any other um, environmental or sustainability or global poverty or animal protection charity. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, we work on all of those issues. We work to reform industrialized animal agriculture to move agriculture away from the use of animals and toward plant-based and clean meat alternatives. 
Okay, so what is the difference? You know, we hear these this term plant-based foods often, and I have maybe always kind of conflated it in my mind with uh, vegan foods, veganism. Is there a difference between the two terms? And if so, what what is it? Well, I think an awful lot of people um, feel that veganism um, and the term vegan comes with a lot of sort of moral and ethical weight. Uh, where plant-based is just a food descriptor. So some people would like to, I mean, I, I guess if you're if you're making plant-based food, and some people do identify their food as vegan, um, and I think some people who don't want to be associated with the ethical aspect of that but who want to eat plant-based become concerned. Um, and then sort of from the other side, there are people in the animal protection community um, who don't like the idea of, of referring to food as vegan uh, because they see veganism as being a lot more than what we choose to put into our mouths. So uh, plant-based just uh, is probably, it, it's definitely an accurate descriptor, um, and I think everybody ends up happy with uh, with that way of referring to it. Can you eat plant-based foods then? Um, so you can be like a non-vegan and, and choose to eat primarily plant-based foods. Is that true? Yeah. Sure. And I mean, that's, that's what people like uh, Mark Bittman and Michael Pollan recommend. They mm-hmm. recommend basing our diet primarily on plant-based foods, although neither of those guys is vegan. Right, right. Bittman, the vegan before six, which I really, I, I love. <laughs> it's a great book. Yeah, yeah, it's a great book. It's a great plan for sure. Definitely. Um, okay, so w- when we kind of apply, apply plant-based to meats, which is the, the, one of the, the big focus of your organization, um, my understanding is that there are kind of two different kinds of um, maybe plant-based meats. Like the, if we had to be super general, if it's like the Beyond Meat camp versus the Impossible Food camp, which Beyond Meats, it seems like they're really experimenting and using more of like a lab um like what is it the new cellular agriculture um with regards to lab grown meats is that versus impossible foods which is maybe more traditional uh plant-based uh products is that is that an accurate description or how would you kind of differentiate the types of uh meat alternatives that are out there right now um sure so i mean i guess the the place to start is that the founders of both Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, they both consider their their products to be meat, so they're not meat alternatives. They are meat but made from plants. So one of the things that Ethan Brown, the founder of Beyond Meat, talks about, he says, look, meat is made up of lipids, amino acids, minerals, water. That's basically it. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing in meat that we cannot make from plants. And that's basically the theory of both Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat. Both of these companies came along, uh, Beyond Meat in 2009, Impossible Foods in 2011, and they both came along and they said, look, the industrial meat sector does a lot of bad stuff in the world. It's bad for the environment. It's a primary cause of climate change. It's bad for sustainability. It requires far too many resources. It's bad for human health. It's bad for animal welfare. What if we could design something that gives every gives consumers exactly what they want from meat, but we could do it without would do it with plants, and that's the brainstorm of both uh, Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, and it is becoming more and more 
uh, the way that an awful lot of plant-based meat companies like Field Roast and Tofurky and Gardein and a lot of these companies are thinking more and more, how do we compete for the consumer dollar of the meat eater um, and not sort of be just a product for vegetarians and vegans and for people who sort of seek it out in the nether regions of the grocery store. And then what you nodded at, the idea of clean meat, which is sometimes referred to as lab meat, but that's wrong. Once it's produced at scale, it will be produced in a factory. Like all processed food starts in a food lab, mm-hmm. but we don't refer to, you know, we don't re- refer to lab-created cornflakes. Right. Um, and corn, corn fl- like cornflakes are less natural um, and have more additives than clean meat. So we're calling clean meat, which is just meat grown from cells, um, in essentially what will look like a meat brewery. So you'll just have the cells, and you'll add nutrients, and the cells will multiply and grow, and you will harvest meat, except that it will be more pure than current meat because there won't be a farm. There won't be a slaughterhouse. You'll basically get your meat from your friendly neighborhood meat brewery. And this product is not yet available. It'll be available, depending on who you ask, um, in something like two to five years, Um, probably closer to the five, but remains to be seen, probably going to be a product of uh, venture capital funding to at least some degree. Um, And that is an entirely different product. I think the folks at Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods would certainly see themselves as in the same basic category as the, you know, veggie burgers that have been around for a while, um, but sort of maybe veggie burger 2.0, veggie nuggets 2.0, et cetera. Whereas the clean meat products, the Memphis Meats, um, is a company out in the Bay Area that's working on this. Um, there are three companies in Israel. There's one in, in the Netherlands by um, a former Harvard Medical School professor named Mark Post called Moussa Meats. Um, then uh, Memphis Meats is run by a, a former, well, a cardiologist, a former tenured medical school professor at the University of Minnesota, Uma Valetti. Um, that stuff is sort of, uh, it's real meat. It's not, you know, it's not fake meat. It's not meat alternative. It's real meat, uh, but grown using sort of standard regenerative medicine techniques instead of, instead of feeding massive amounts of crops to an animal mm-hmm. so that the animal grows and the cells multiply and, and, and grow. Um, instead of doing that, you feed the cells directly, and it's a far more efficient process causes up to 95% less greenhouse gases, whether you're talking about plant-based meat or clean meat. These are solutions to the really big questions in agriculture. How do we feed 9.7 billion people by 2050, and what do we do about climate change? Plant-based meat, clean meat, they answer those questions. And I want to kind of get into a lot of the um, benefits of eating this way, but just before we, I want to kind of close off this conversation to make sure I'm um, totally clear. So can you just kind of give us um, an example of like what is included in one of the either impossible uh, foods uh, products and or Beyond Meats products versus um, what you just uh discussed, so versus something um, in, uh, in Memphis Meats? Um, well, Memphis Meats is easy. It's just meat. So if you're going to be eating chicken, mm-hmm. all you've got is chicken. If you're going to be eating beef, all you've got is beef, and so on. So that's what Memphis Meats is. Okay. Um, people, can look, people can look at the, at the uh, ingredient list on Impossible Foods website, which is impossiblefoods.com. 
We've got sort of a comparison of the Impossible Burger to the Beyond Burger nutritionally there. Um, so to Beyond Meat is just at beyondmeat.com. The Beyond Meat Burger, the Beyond Burger, and the Beyond Meat Chicken Strips and the, all of those, those are soy-based. Um, and I think the Impossible, I'm sorry, those are pea-based. Um, and I think the Impossible Burger may be soy-based, but I'm not completely sure. It'd be pretty easy to look it up online now. Is there a difference between those and like the tofu and tofurkey and uh, Satan that, that are currently on the market, or are they just sort of like more innovative, tastier approaches? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on who you ask, right? I mean, I, an awful lot of people um, like Satan. I, <laughs> yeah, I, should, I love, just... <laughs> you know, tofurkey and garden burgers and boca burgers and all of that. I think it's all terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, brain, the brainstorm um, of the guys who founded Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods. Like, the brainstorm of these guys is, look, people are eating meat despite how it's produced. People are not eating meat because of how it's produced. Right. If we can replicate the mouthfeel and the flavor, once we get, you know, basically, if we can biomimic it, but using plants, once we get the price down, people will shift. Like people don't like the fact that meat causes animals to suffer, that it's bad for us, that it's unsustainable, that it causes climate change. Those are like the uh, the sort of accidental effects. People like the taste, they like the mouth mouthfeel, they like the texture. Uh, so the brainstorm of Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods is let's replicate that, and they're doing a pretty good job. I mean, people like um, David Chang from Momofuku. Um, who is really, really big into meat, um, is probably one of the biggest boosters that Impossible Foods has. Uh, Bill Gates tried the Beyond Meat chicken strips, mm-hmm. and he tried it, and he was blown away. He said he couldn't tell the difference, and he said, what I just tried was not just a clever meat substitute. This is the future of food. Um, Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, now, now uh, chairman of the board of the parent company of Google, Alphabet, talked about this stuff as being a way that we can feed the global poor and do it without the adverse climate impact. So a lot of people are really excited about these companies and their capacity to solve some of the really big global problems. So it's kind of a different way of thinking about a product that's been around for a while. Mm -hmm. And I am very excited to see some of the sort of um, both some of the old guard innovating in ways that are just super exciting. Um, some of the latest products coming out of Tofurky and, and Field Roast and Gardein, these companies that have been around a little longer, are just spectacular. And it really is the case, I think, that um, all of these companies are now competing for the consumer dollars of meat eaters in a way that is, is going to cause the plant-based meat market sector to just take off. It's already starting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I was not really surprised about, but, you know, found really interesting is that, you know, this extends um, very much to kind of the meat industry itself, the conventional meat industry. So um, to that, as I know, you know, in uh, 2016, Tyson announced that it purchased a 5% stake in Beyond Meat um, for an undisclosed, uh, undisclosed amount. Uh, which really kind of speaks to your point that, you know, even the meat industry is recognizing that these plant-based proteins aren't a fad. Um, I'm wondering if that kind of came as a surprise to the to the industry and, and what the consumer, you know, your base consumer's uh, reaction to that has been. Well, we're, we could not be more excited. I mean, one of the things that really took plant-based milk from basically zero 
to 10%, which is where it is now, one of the things that took plant-based, that, that did that for plant-based milk is that Dean Foods, a massive dairy conglomerate, bought White Wave, put White Wave into the milk case and started heavily promoting it. So the fact that Tyson Foods, its very first investment, it has a venture capital fund, Tyson New Ventures, and its very first investment with Tyson New Ventures was this 5% stake in Beyond Meat. And the people over at Tyson have been talking about making more purchases of plant-based meat companies, of clean meat companies, of other alternative proteins. Very forward thinking on the part of the company, and it opens up all kinds of distribution channels that would not have otherwise been open to Beyond Meat. So when we see Pinnacle Foods pay $150 million to buy Gardein, um, or we see Tyson buy a 5% stake um, in Beyond Meat, or we see a massive meat conglomerate in Canada called Maple Leaf, mm-hmm. uh, buying Light Life, which is a, a refrigerated plant-based meat. What we see all of that as a, a really good sign for the capacity of these products to get more and more popular and reach more and more consumers, doing exactly what plant-based milk did maybe you know, five or ten years ago. Um, so we, you talked, you talked a little bit before about kind of some of the benefits to eating this way. And, and certainly I think the acquisition of some of these, um, companies, these plant-based companies by, you know, the meat industry itself reflects, um, an acknowledgement of consumer demand, wanting to shift towards more responsible, socially responsible, environmentally responsible companies. Um, what are some of the added kind of benefits, you know, beyond maybe the environmental uh, benefits of reducing the footprint of animal agriculture? Well, it's worth underlining the environmental benefits because um, there are a lot of foundations, a lot of venture capital funds, a lot of governments that are asking the question, you know, how do we deal with food security? So mm-hmm. as the global population grows to 9.7 billion people, how do we feed all those people? Um, and what do we do about climate change? So just a, a quick step back and saying animal agriculture, the most efficient meat is chicken. And it still takes nine calories in the form of feed to get one calorie back out in the huh. form of chicken. Obviously, if you're eating plant-based meat, you know, it's one calorie of pea protein to get one calorie of nutrition. So it's 900% more efficient to eat the crops directly rather than to feed them through animals. And that's just the calories in, calories out. It's also, when you think about what's required to get animal-based meat to the table, you have to grow the crops, except you're growing nine times as many of them if you're getting chicken, 25 times as many of them if you're getting beef. You ship those crops to a feed mill. You operate the feed mill. You ship the feed to the factory farm. You operate the factory farm. You ship the animals to the slaughterhouse. You operate. I mean, it's all of these extra factories, all of these extra stages of production. Environmentally, it's more climate change than all transportation combined. So the benefits of just growing the cells directly for clean meat um, or just eating the plants rather than growing the plants, you know, nine hundred percent as many of them to feed them to animals with all of that inefficiency. Environmentally speaking, these are really a big deal. And that's why Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, when he was at the Milk and Global Conference last year, he said plant-based meat is one of the big technological innovations that is poised to improve life for humanity by a factor of at least tenfold. That was a climate change issue and then the sustainability issue, just the fact that it takes nine times as many crops if you're going to feed them to animals so that we can eat animals than if you're just going to eat those crops 
directly. And again, that's the most efficient. It gets worse if you're talking about aquaculture um, or you're talking about pigs or you're talking about cattle. So those are the really two big ones. Um, but these products are also better for our health. Most people know that they should probably be eating, at the very least, they should be eating less meat, if not cutting it out altogether. The clean meat. Are are they better for your health? Not. I mean, I, I recognize, undoubtedly, uh, Americans eat way too much meat, right? That's a fact in their in their diets. And then it's a trend that is we're starting to see in developing countries, even like a huge uptake in meat consumption and uh, all of the challenges that are that are associated with that. But I I wonder, my question is, is it better to eat meat like, you know, traditional meat versus a product that is processed? Well, the, the pro, I mean, uh, you, there's processing and then there's processing, right? I mean, like bread is processed. Right, right. Um, Highly processed. Or processed. Soy milk is processed. So the, the sort of mantra of anti-processing is nothing bad added, nothing good taken away. Mm-hmm. And you look at plant-based meats, and they still have a lot of complex carbohydrates. They still have a lot of fiber. Um they sometimes can be high in sodium, so if somebody has a sodium issue, they should look at that. Um, some of them can be high in fat, but not as high in fat as, as animal products. I mean, if you look at the nutritional research um, that impugns meat from a health standpoint, the problems with meat are that it has cholesterol and saturated fat, um, and plant-based meats have no cholesterol. And as far as I can tell, all of them have a lot less saturated fat. And then things meat doesn't have, no matter how much meat you eat, you get no complex carbohydrates and you get no fiber and you get no phytochemicals. And all of the plant-based meats, they have fiber, they have complex carbohydrates, and they have phytochemicals. So literally infinitely more than you're going to get in meat since meat has none. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you, if you, it, it may be um, that eating beans and rice directly or a whole foods plant-based diet is better than eating the processed plant-based meat. But if you actually look at the nutritional components, you know, what is it that is good about eating beans and grains? Mm -hmm. You're getting that in plant-based meat. And what is it that's bad about processing? Plant-based meats might have a little bit bit less fiber. They might have some some added sodium. They might have some added fat. Um, But they're still going to be better for all of those nutrients than if you compare them to chicken or pork or beef or whatever. So, um, and in fact, you know, there, there's uh, the former the former president of the American College of Cardiology is this guy named Dr. Kim Williams. And if you Google Kim Williams and vegan, you'll get all kinds of interesting stuff about this guy talking about how um, a fully plant-based diet can actually put the American Car- College of Cardiology out of business if people would switch to this way of eating. And what he did when he, when he adopted a completely plant-based diet, he just switched out all of the animal-based meat that he was eating for plant-based meat. And his cholesterol went down from over 250 to down to 150, which is considered to be heart attack proof. Nobody dies from coronary artery occlusions if their mm-hmm. cholesterol level is below 150. And that's what kills almost half of Americans. Yeah. Um, and he did that with, you know, it's a sample of one, but he did it with plant-based meat. And mm-hmm. he, as somebody who really understands these issues, is a plant-based meat devotee, and it was really just a sub of animal-based meat. Let's do plant-based meat instead, and he got a lot healthier. 
Um, okay, so we're going to have to take a quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. Uh, but when we get back, uh, we'll be continuing our conversation about the wonderful world of plant-based meat alternatives. And we're going to also focus on some of the policy and market solutions in play to increase demand for these products. Stay tuned. program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Bruce Friedrich, Executive Director of the Good Food Institute, which is an association promoting clean meat and plant-based alternatives to animal products. Okay, so I want to um, shift and talk a little bit about, um, you know, the, the work that you're doing to to really promote this, this way of eating. And I'm wondering if you can tell me some of the tactics, maybe um, specifically kind of marketing tactics and um, what you're doing to promote this, you know, an increase uh, in demand for these products. Well, one of the things that we're doing is actually supply side. So the Good Food Institute, and people can find out about all of our programs online at just gfi.org. So for GFI, for goodfoodinstitute.org, people can also find our team on the Our Team page. And we have a lot of job openings. So if people want to join us in any of our departments, um, you can check out the jobs listing there. But two of the things that we're doing that I am most excited about One of them is that we're actually starting companies. So the plant-based meat space, uh, if somebody eats a lot of veggie burgers, they may feel like there are a lot of companies. But as a proportion of the meat industry, at the moment, it's very small. It's poised to explode, but at the moment, it's very small. So uh, we are figuring out what is the white space, what are the companies that should be started, and then we're finding entrepreneurs to start them. Um, And that's our innovation department. We're also going to schools that are focused on entrepreneurship or synthetic biology or tissue engineering or plant biology, and we're going and we're educating the next generation of employees and entrepreneurs that might start or join these companies about the fact that they can do very well in the world, they can solve some really big problems uh, vocationally, and they can also do really well for themselves. So I've been to MIT's School of Management repeatedly, Harvard Business School repeatedly, the Stanford School of Business repeatedly, and, and we make a point of going to all of the top schools for entrepreneurship, synthetic biology, and so on. 
um, at least on an annual basis to make sure that the people who can you know, who can do this stuff professionally, that they know what's going on. Um, our science and technology team is doing some really interesting scientific work, so we take very, very seriously what the founders of Impossible Foods, Pat Brown, and the founder of Beyond Meat, Ethan Brown, uh, no relation, both last name Brown, but <laughs> different guys, um, and they're both talking about basically biomimicking meat with plants. And Bill Gates, when he dived into this, he said, look, there are 92% of plant proteins have not yet been explored for the capacity to be turned into plant-based meat. So there's an awful lot of work that needs to be done with protein optimization, figuring out what the best method of manufacture is. Like, there's a ton of really interesting science to be done. And we've really done, we've done soy, we've done wheat, and we've done pea, but we haven't done lentils or chickpea. I mean, there are just limitless numbers of legumes. Why is that? Sorry to to interrupt you. yeah, no, I mean, I think the, I think the question why is that is a, is a really good question. And one of the things that our scientists pointed out to me is that this industry is just still really small. And it's about to explode. All of the companies that have come along have been able to attract significant amounts of venture capital, and, and all of them are thriving. But there aren't a lot of companies, relatively speaking, when you compare it to the meat industry. It's still well under 1% of the meat industry. So plant-based milk is 10% of the milk industry, but plant-based meat is less than 1% of the meat industry. So we need a lot more scientific work on both the plant-based front and the clean meat front. So our scientists are figuring out what are the most promising areas of research, and then we're reaching out to the people who are in the labs who can do the work um, and working with them to actually design studies and get, get funding for those studies. So those are the, a few of the really exciting things we're doing. We're also doing a lot in corporate engagement. We're doing a lot in policy. We have a lobbyist on Capitol Hill who's focused mostly on, on um, what's happening um, in Congress. And then we have a policy director who's focused mostly on regulatory issues for both plant-based and clean meat. Then we have a corporate engagement department that's reaching out to restaurants and grocery stores and food service in the really big food conglomerates and encouraging as much uh, sale of these products and diversification of protein offerings from the really big food conglomerates. Um, Okay, so lots of stuff, lots of stuff going on, it sounds like. Um, What kind of policy solutions? Yes, that's that's great. What kind of policy solutions um, are currently in play, both on the regulatory side and uh, with regard to the work that you're doing in Congress? Can you give us a couple of examples? For the for the wonkier yeah, of uh, listeners, yeah, one of our biggest one of our biggest regulatory battles has to do with labeling. So you may have seen that the dairy industry is trying to stop uh, soy milk makers from calling their products soy milk, and mm-hmm. um, nut yogurt and nut cheese makers from calling their products nut yogurt and nut cheese, and so on. They're saying that um, you cannot use a traditional dairy term like milk or cheese. Uh, put a modifier on it, and sell your product, which, of course, is absurd. Uh, but not only is it absurd, not only does it would it would, and, and the reason for that is that the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act in the 1930s gave the FDA the ability to promulgate what are called standards of identity. And so milk is defined as the mammary secretions of a bovine, which for people who are paying attention, that would mean that goat's milk also can't use the word milk on it. 
um, according to the standard of identity and so on. But the FDA is, is far more rational than the dairy industry, and the FDA has so far said um, you can have gluten-free bread, even though that technically doesn't, doesn't align to the standard of identity for bread. You can have rice noodles, even though those don't technically align to the definition of noodles. Right. As long as customers are clear on what the product is, Rice noodles are fine, gluten-free bread is fine, and soy and almond milk are fine. Nobody buys soy milk thinking that it comes from a cow who has fed a bunch of soy, right? <laughs> Everybody knows what they're getting. Um, so our lawyers put together a 40-page petition to the FDA asking them to take an official stand on the policy that they are enforcing. So, so far, they're allowing soy milk to be called soy milk, but some soy milk makers and some nut cheese makers you know, they're not, they, they are labeling their products something else. And so you've got a situation right now in which federal product labeling, yeah. well, it's not consistent. It becomes a function of the risk tolerance of the lawyers. So some lawyers say, don't do it, it's risky. And some lawyers say, this is absurd, go ahead and do it. Um, and that is not a way to figure out labels. That is anti-competitive. And then it's also, if the FDA doesn't do what we're asking it to do, that would be a violation of the First Amendment because corporate free speech, it is not strict scrutiny, according to the Supreme Court. So it's a lesser standard, but it's still a standard. And you have to have a, a reasonable pur government purpose, and your regulation has to be narrowly tailored to that purpose. And we don't believe that the government can possibly justify telling soy milk that it can't call itself soy milk. So um, if the FDA were to come out in favor of the dairy industry, we would sue them on First Amendment grounds. And I think we would win. So that's one of the things that we're working on. Another regu couple other regulatory things have to do with actually getting the clean meat products um, to market, because mm -hmm. right now we need, we need to figure out what the regulatory structure is going to look like. And we're working with all of the companies um, that are working on creating clean meat to figure out what that's going to look like. And then well, how, and does, that, how does that relate? We've got a bunch of statutory stuff we're working on, too. Sorry, how does that relate? Um, what are the regulatory barriers to, kind of, to get to bringing it to market currently? Um, well, there probably won't be any, uh, but we do need to have we do need to have figured out what the expected regulatory path will be. So okay. uh, we need to have some meetings with FDA and USDA because I mean, just at its most basic level, the USDA there are probably you know 500 regulations with regard to marketing meat. And they're all under the USDA, and they all assume a product that comes from a farm and a slaughterhouse. And while this is the exact same product, so it, fall, it qualifies as what the government calls substantial equivalence, which is to say, is it the same thing? Yes, it is the same thing. So um, we can introduce it. The problem is that the regulations that are on the books for government oversight assume a slaughterhouse. So we need some new regulations, or we need a different scheme under which it's going to be um, regulated and introduced into the market, and we're we're doing some we're doing a deep dive analysis of that at the moment. We're doing that in the United States and around the world because, of course, you know every country has its own regulatory scheme, right. um, and this this is a product for everywhere. So our policy team is working with lawyers all over the world uh, to figure out what the path forward is, and all of them are pro bono. This is all lawyers who believe that clean meat is the answer to some really big global problems, and they want to help. What is demand like in other countries, say Europe, for these types of products? Is this something that is really um, you know, taking hold first and foremost in the States, or do you see other kind of countries working to spearhead these initiatives as well? 
You know, it's it's interesting. Um, certainly, um, foundations and venture capitalists, um, especially impact-focused venture capitalists, um, there is a lot of excitement in the United States because there are people who see these big problems, climate change and sustainability, food security in particular, and they want to solve those big problems. As in, um, although, obviously, the decision of the Trump administration to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement yeah. um, puts less, I mean, makes, it, makes it a little bit of a steeper climb to get government focus on this. So um, any government that cares about climate change, this is going to be a part of the solution. The foremost think tank in Europe, um, Chatham House, said that it will be literally impossible for any government to meet its Paris obligations unless animal product consumption goes down. And this is a way to get standard animal product consumption to go down. So we, we have been trying to educate people to make different choices for a really long time. Mm-hmm. The exciting brainstorm of plant-based meat and clean meat is that people can continue to make their choices on the basis of price, taste, and convenience. Those are the three things that everybody considers. Mm-hmm. And we are just making better products. We're using behavioral economics, and we're making the default choice the choice that's good for animals, it's good for the climate, it's good for sustainability. So this sort of a solution is something that uh, that gets that nets a lot of excitement everywhere, um, and especially where people are thinking about climate change, because just telling people to eat less meat because of climate change is not likely to work very well. Mm-hmm. But giving them products that either are the exact same thing or taste identical but don't have the adverse climate impact, that's probably the way to go. And a lot of people are excited about that. A lot everywhere. of a lot of people in countries, um, with the exception right now of the U.S., given their recent decision and announcement to pull out of the the Paris Agreement and Syria. <laughs> so we join yeah, the, US, the U.S., Syria, and Nicaragua are the, the three companies that are in the aren't Nicaragua in the because they weren't didn't go far enough. Enthu- <laughs> yeah, there's still a lot of enthusiasm for it here. There are a yeah, lot of yeah. capitalists who want to solve the climate change issue. There are governments. You know, the state of New York, the state of California, Absolutely. a lot of the big cities, a lot of people are saying we're still, you know, Exxon we're Mobil. still going to abide by the Paris Agreement obligations. Yeah. And so this is a solution for anybody who cares about it. A hundred percent. at the federal level, yeah. um, but still a lot of people in the U.S. who want to do this. Yes, absolutely, no doubt. And um, just one of the unfortunate uh, <laughs> things ha- that happened at the federal level recently. Um, but I totally agree that there is a, a ton of enthusiasm, which is a good, is a good thing. And it's about time. Um, one, uh, one question I do have before we, we have to wrap up pretty soon, but I want to, with regard to some of the policy solutions, I'm wondering if you, if there's been a effort to kind of join, um, some of the initiatives, like for instance, antibiotics in meat, um, to, work together with um, policymakers and and uh, regulatory agencies who might not necessarily, you know, who, who are sort of acknowledging like meat exists, right? And there's still a super high demand. And mm-hmm. one of the most immediate concerns um, is the very real and uh, threat of antibiotic resistance in meat. So I'm wondering if you're supportive of any way, even though it is kind of, you know, addressing like the meat industry in and of itself um, of, of uh, one of an initiative to kind of reduce antibiotic use in, in animals. Yeah, and I mean, any, any of your listeners who are not familiar with uh, the possibility that antibiotics are about to stop working, mm-hmm. um, just Google the end of working antibiotics. It is some scary, scary, yeah. 
scary stuff. Rivals climate change, in my opinion, for, for the possible catastrophic consequences Absolutely. of a world where antibiotics stop working. And everybody understands and agrees that it is the use of subtherapeutic dual-use antibiotics in, other, in farm animals. So more than 70% of all of the antibiotics that are produced by, by pharmaceuticals in the United States, more than 70% of them are fed to farm animals, not because the farm animals are sick and need treatment, but because the farm animals are in such awful conditions that they would all drop over dead from the putridness of their conditions if they weren't dosed on these low-level antibiotics. And you want to get really scared, start looking at some of the antibiotics that are being used in the developing world and some of the antibiotics that are being used in China um, on the Like, that stuff is really, really scary. And this is yet another reason why plant-based meat and clean meat, neither of which require any antibiotics whatsoever, obviously, uh, this is another reason why these are one of the solutions. So we're absolutely reaching out to the communities that are, you know, there's a whole coalition keep antibiotics working, um, and we're absolutely reaching out and, and building um, bridges with the communities, any community that recognizes that industrial, the industrial farming of animals has these really bad consequences. Um, and this is a solution. The plant-based meat is a solution. The clean meat is a solution. Um, any, uh, we, I always like to wrap up the show uh, asking how our listeners can get involved um, in a deeper level. So what would your advice be for people uh, you know, interested in everything we talked about today and kind of supporting the, uh, this kind of change? Well, if anybody is entrepreneurial-minded, please get in touch because there are a lot of brand-new companies that are being formed and companies that need to be formed. Um, if you are science or innovation-minded or community – anyway, check out our job openings at gfi.org up slash jobs. Um, and when you go into grocery stores, find the plant-based meat, find the ones that you like, feed them to friends and loved ones. Um, and ask the managers of the stores to move them out of the nether regions of the grocery stores. When you're um, in a restaurant, you know, order the plant-based options and encourage the restaurant to offer more plant-based options. Thank them for the plant-based options that they have. They're really, I mean, they're borderline limitless things that people can do to get involved. But check out gfi.org. Um, get in touch with us, and we, we would love to loop you into all the stuff we're doing. All right. Wonderful. Bruce, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Jenna. It was really, it was really a pleasure. I appreciate your having me. <laughs> thank you. Okay. Before we wrap up, I want to um, remind listeners that our show is only possible thanks to member donations. We would literally not be able to reach every one of you um, every week without the generosity of HRN members around the world. And now is your chance to join the club because the HRN Summer Membership Drive is back. Uh, becoming a member is super easy and comes with limited edition summer swag, 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 swag like t-shirts, drink koozies. I mean, who, uh, never enough of those. Um, and pins for your sweet jean vest. Yeah. <laughs> Ayo. <laughs> um, sign up for one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer. All right. Um, want to thank uh, Bruce Friedrich for coming on the show again. 
And I also, of course, want to thank our current sponsors for your generous support. Show music is by Tim Archer. And a big thanks to the best engineer in the whole world, David Tedashore. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. And hey, if you like what you hear, let us know in the comments section. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook. And find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liu, and thank you for listening. for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. There was nothing.